Chapter thirty nine of At the Time Appointed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. At the Time Appointed by A. Maynard Barber. Chapter thirty nine. At the Time Appointed. For a year and a half, Darrell worked uninterruptedly at Ophir his constantly increasing commissions from eastern states testifying to his marked ability as a mining expert notwithstanding the incessant demands upon his time he still adhered to his old rule reserving a few hours out of each twenty-four which he devoted to scientific or literary study as his mood impelled he soon found himself again drawn irresistibly towards the story begun during his stay at the hermitage but temporarily laid aside on his return east he carefully reviewed the synopsis, which he had written in detail, and as he did, he felt himself entering into the spirit of the story till it seemed once more part of his own existence. He revised the work already done, eliminating, adding, making the outlines clearer, more defined, then, with steady unfaltering hand, carried the work forward to completion. Eighteen months after his re-establishment at Ophir, he was commissioned to go to Alaska to examine certain mining properties in a deal involving over a million dollars, and anxious to be on the ground as early as possible, he took the first boat north that season. His story was published on the eve of his departure. He received a few copies which he regarded with a half-fond, half-whimsical air. One he sent to Kate Underwood, having first written his initials on the fly-leaf underneath the brief petition, Be Merciful. He then went his way, his time and attention wholly occupied by his work, with little thought as to whether the newly hatched craft was destined to ride the waves of popularity or be engulfed beneath the waters of oblivion. Months of constant travel, of hard work and rough fare, followed. His report on the mines was satisfactory. The deal was consummated, and he received a handsome percentage. But not content with this, determined to familiarize himself with the general situation in that country and the conditions obtaining, he pushed on into the interior, pursuing his explorations till the return of the cold season. Touching at British Columbia on his way home, and finding tempting inducements there in the way of mining properties, he stopped to investigate, and remained during the winter and spring months. It was therefore not until the following June that he found himself really homeward bound, and once more within the mountain ranges guarding the approach to the busy little town of Ophir. He had been gone considerably over a year. He had accumulated a vast amount of information invaluable for future work along his line, and he had succeeded financially beyond his anticipations. Occasionally during his absence, in papers picked up here and there, he had seen favorable mention of his story, from which he inferred that his first venture in the dreams of fiction had not been quite a failure, and in this opinion he was confirmed by a letter just received from his publishers, which had followed him for months. But all thought of these things was for the time forgotten in an almost boyish delight that he was at last on his way home. As he came within the sight of the familiar ranges, his thoughts reverted again and again to Kate Underwood. His whole soul seemed to cry out for her with a sudden insatiable longing. His mail had of necessity been irregular and infrequent. Their letters had somehow miscarried, and he had not heard directly from her for months. Her last letter was from Germany. She was then still engrossed in her music, but her father's health was greatly improved, and he was beginning to talk of home. 
Her father's latest letter had stated that the Underwoods would probably return early in July. And this was June. Darrell felt a twinge of disappointment. He was now able to remember many incidents in their acquaintance. He recalled their first meeting at the Pines on that June day five years ago. How beautiful the old place must look now! But without Kate's presence, the charm would be lost for him. He regretted that he had started homeward quite so soon. The time would not have seemed so long among the mining camps of the great Northwest as here, where everything reminded him of her. The stopping of the train at a health resort far up among the mountains, a few miles from Ophir, roused Darrell from his reverie. With a sigh he recalled his wandering thoughts and left the car for a walk up and down the platform. The town, perched saucily on the slopes of a heavily timbered mountain, looked very attractive in the gathering twilight. Though early in the season, the hotel and sanitarium seemed well filled, while numerous pleasure-seekers were promenading the walks leading to and from the springs which gave the place its popularity. Darrell felt a sudden, unaccountable desire to remain. Without waiting to analyze the impulse, as inexplicable as it was irresistible which actuated him, he hastened into the sleeper and secured his grip and top-coat. As the train pulled out, he stepped into the station and sent a message to his father at Ophir, stating that he had decided to remain over a day or two at the Springs, and asking him to look after his baggage on its arrival. He then took a carriage for the hotel. It was not without some compunctions of conscience that Darrell wired his father of his decision, and even as he rode swiftly along the winding streets he wondered what strange fancy possessed him that he should stop among strangers instead of continuing his journey home. To his father it would certainly seem unaccountable, as it did now to himself. Mr. Britton, however, on receiving his son's message, could not restrain a smile, for only the preceding day he had received a telegram from Kate Underwood, at the same place, in which she stated that they had started home earlier than at first intended, and as her father was somewhat fatigued by their long journey, they had decided to stop for two or three days' rest at the Springs. Darrell arrived at the hotel at a late hour for dinner. The dining-room was therefore nearly deserted when he took his place at the table. Dinner over, he went out for a stroll, and, glad to be alone with his thoughts, walked up and down the entire length of the little town. His mind was constantly on Kate. Again and again he seemed to see her as he loved best to recall her, standing on the summit of the divide, her wind-tossed hair blown about her brow, her eyes shining as she predicted their reunion in perfect love. Over and over he seemed to hear her words, and his heart burned with desire for their fulfillment. He had waited patiently, he had shown what he could achieve, how he could win, but all achievements, all victories were worthless without her love and presence. The moon was just rising as he returned to the hotel, but it was still early. His decision was taken. He would go to a fear by the morning train, learn Kate's whereabouts from his father, and go to meet her and accompany her home. He had chosen a path leading through a secluded portion of the grounds, and as he approached the hotel his attention was arrested by someone singing. Glancing in the direction whence the song came, he saw one of the private parlors brightly lighted, the long, low window open upon the veranda. Something in the song held him entranced, spellbound. The voice was incomparably rich, possessing wonderful range and power of expression, but this alone was not what especially appealed to him. Through all and underlying all 
was a quality so strangely, sweetly familiar, which thrilled his soul to its very depths. Whether with joy or pain he could not have told, it seemed akin to both. Still held by a spell, he drew nearer the window, until he heard the closing words of the refrain, words which had been ringing with strange persistency in his mind for the last two or three hours. Sometime, sometime, and that will be God's own good time for you and me. His heart leaped wildly. With a bound, swift and noiseless, he was on the veranda, just as the singer, with tender, lingering emphasis, repeated the words so low as to be barely audible to Darrell standing before the open window. But even while he listened, he gazed in astonishment at the singer. Could that magnificent woman be his girl-love? She was superbly formed, splendidly proportioned. The rich, warm blood glowed in her cheeks, and her hair gleamed in the light like spun gold. He stood motionless. He would not retreat. He dared not advance. At last the words of the song died away. A slight sound caused the singer to turn, facing him, and their eyes met. That was enough. In that one glance the memory of his love returned to him like an overwhelming flood. She was no longer his dream-love, but a splendid, living reality, only more beautiful than his dreams or his imagination had portrayed her. He stretched out his arms towards her with the one word, Kathy. She had already risen, a great unspeakable joy illuminating her face, but at the sound of that name, vibrating with the pent-up emotion, the concentrated love of all the years of their separation, she came swiftly forward, her bosom palpitating, her eyes shining with the love called forth by his cry. He stepped through the low window within the room. In an instant his arms were clasped about her, and holding her close to his breast, his dark eyes told her more eloquently than words of his heart's hunger for her, while in her eyes and in the blushes running riot in her cheeks he read his welcome. He kissed her hair and brow with a sort of reverence. Then, hearing voices in the corridor and rooms adjoining, he seized a light wrap from a chair nearby and threw it about her shoulders. "'Come outside, sweetheart,' he whispered, and drawing her arm within his own, led her out onto the veranda and down the path along which he had just come. In the first transport of their joy they were silent, each almost fearing to break the spell which seemed laid upon them. The moon had risen, transforming the somber scene to one of beauty, but to them love's radiance had suddenly made the world inexpressibly fair. The very flowers as they passed breathed perfume like incense in their path, and the trees whispered benedictions upon them. Darrell first broke the silence. I would have been in Ophir tonight, but some mysterious irresistible impulse led me to stop here. Did you weave a spell about me, you sweet sorceress? he asked, gazing tenderly into her face. I think it must have been some higher influence than mine, she replied with sweet gravity, for I was also under the spell. I supposed you many miles away. Yet as I sang tonight, it seemed as though you were close to me as though if I turned I should see you, just as I did, she concluded with a radiant smile. But how did you find me? How does the night-bird find its mate, he queried, in low vibrant tones. Then, as her color deepened, he continued with passionate earnestness, 
I was here where we are now, my very soul crying out for you, when I heard your song. It thrilled me. I felt as though waking from a dream, but I knew my love was near. Down through the years I heard her soul calling mine. Following that call, I found my love, and listening, heard the very words which my own heart had been repeating over and over to itself, alone and in the darkness. Almost unconsciously they had stopped at a turn in the path. Darrell paused a moment, for tears were trembling on the golden lashes. Drawing her closer, he whispered, Kathy, do you remember our parting on the divide? Do you think I could ever forget? she asked. You predicted we would one day stand reunited on the heights of such love as we had not dreamed of then. I ask you when that day would be. Do you remember your answer? I do. He continued in impassioned tones. Are not the conditions fulfilled, sweetheart? My love for you then was as a dream, a myth, compared with what I bring you today. And looking in your eyes I need no words to tell me that your love has broadened and deepened with the years. Kathy, is not this the time appointed? It must be, she replied. There could be none other like this. Holding her head against his breast and raising her face to his, he said, You gave me your heart that day, Kathy, to hold in trust. I have been faithful to that trust through all these years. Do you give it me now for my very own? Yes, she answered slowly with sweet solemnity, to have and to hold forever. He sealed the promise with a long, rapturous kiss. But what followed, the broken, disjointed phrases, the mutual pledges, the tokens of love given and received, are all among the secrets which the mountains never told. As they retraced their steps towards the hotel, Darrell said, We have waited long, sweetheart. Yes, but the waiting has brought us good of itself, she answered. Think of all you have accomplished. I know better than you think, for your father has kept me posted. And better yet, what these years have fitted you for accomplishing in the future. To me, that was the best part of your work in your story. It was strong and cleverly told, but what pleased me most was the evidence that it was but the beginning, the promise of something better yet to come. If only I could persuade all critics to see it through your eyes, Darrell replied with a smile. Do you wish to know, she asked with sudden seriousness, what will always remain to me the noblest, most heroic act of your life? Most assuredly I do, he answered, her own gravity checking the laughing reply which rose to his lips. The fight you made and won alone in the mountains the day you renounced our love for honor's sake. I can see now that the stand you took and maintained so nobly formed the turning point in both our lives. I did not look at it then as you did. I would have married you then and there, and gone with you to the ends of the earth rather than sacrifice your love, but you upheld my honor with your own. You fought against heavy odds and won, and to me no other victory will compare with it, since greater they who on life's battlefield with unseen foes and fierce temptations fight. Darrell silently drew her nearer himself, feeling that even in this foretaste of joy he had received ample compensation for the past. A few days later there was a quiet wedding at the Springs. The beautiful church on the mountainside had been decorated for the occasion, 
and at an early hour, while yet the robins were singing their matins, the little wedding party gathered about the altar where John Darrell Britton and Kate Underwood plighted their troth for life. Above the jubilant bird songs, above the low, subdued tones of the organ, the words of the grand old marriage service rang out with impressiveness. Besides the rector and his wife, there were present only Mr. Underwood, Mrs. Dean, and Mr. Britton. It had been Kate's wish, with which Darrell had gladly coincided, thus to be quietly married, surrounded only by their immediate relatives. Let our wedding be a fit consummation of our betrothal, she had said to him, without publicity, unhampered by conventionalities, so it will always seem the sweeter and more sacred. That evening found them all at the pines, assembled on the veranda watching the sunset, the old home seeming wonderfully restful and peaceful to the returned travelers. The years which had come and gone since Darrell first came to the pines told heaviest on Mr. Underwood. His hair was nearly white, and he had aged in many ways, appearing older than Mr. Britton, who was considerably his senior. But age had brought its compensations, for the stern, immobile face had softened, and the deep-set eyes glowed with a kindly, beneficent light. Mr. Britton's hair was well silvered, but his face bore evidence of the great joy which had come into his life, and as his eyes rested upon his son, he seemed to live anew in that glorious young life. To Mrs. Dean, the years had brought only a few silver threads in the brown hair, and an added serenity to the placid, unfurrowed brow. Calm and undemonstrative as ever, but with a smile of deep content, she sat in her accustomed place, her knitting needles flashing and clicking with their old-time regularity. Duke, who had been left in Mr. Britton's care during Darrell's absence, occupied his old place on the top stair, but even at his five years of added dignity, could not restrain him from occasional demonstrations of joy at finding himself again at the pines and with his beloved master and mistress. As the twilight began to deepen, Kate suggested that they go inside and led the way, not to the family sitting-room, but to a spacious room on the eastern side, a room which had originally been intended as a library, but never furnished as such. It was beautifully decorated with palms and flowers, while the fireplace had been filled with light boughs of spruce and fir. As they entered the room, Kate, slipping her arm within Mr. Britton's, led him before the fireplace. "'My dear father,' she said, "'we have chosen this evening as the one most appropriate for your formal installation in our family circle and our home. I say formal, because you have really been one of ourselves for years. You have shared our joys and our sorrows. We have had no secrets from you.' but from this time we want you to take your place in our home as you did long ago in our hearts. We have prepared this room for you, to be your sanctum sanctorium, and have placed in it a few little tokens of our love for you and gratitude to you, which we beg you to accept as such. She bent towards the fireplace. The hearthstone is ever an emblem of home. In lighting the fires upon this hearthstone, we dedicate it to your use and christen this our father's room. The flames burst upward as she finished speaking, sending a resinous fragrance into the air, and revealing a room fitted with such loving thought and care that nothing which could add to his comfort had been omitted. Near the center of the room stood a desk of solid oak, a gift from Mr. Underwood. 
beside it a reclining chair from Mrs. Dean, while on the wall opposite, occupying nearly a third of that side of the room, was a superb painting of the Hermitage, standing out in the firelight with wonderful realism, perfect in its bold outlines and somber coloring, the united gift of his son and daughter, which Darrell had ordered executed before his departure for Alaska. With loving congratulations, the rest of the group gathered about Mr. Britton, who was nearly speechless with emotion. As Mr. Underwood wrung his hand, he exclaimed with assumed gruffness, "'Jack, old partner, you thought you'd got a monopoly on that boy of yours, but I've got in on the deal at last.' "'You haven't got any the best of me, Dave,' Mr. Britton retorted, smiling through his tears, "'for I've got a share now in the sweetest daughter on earth.' "'Yes, papa.' Kate laughingly rejoined. There are three of us Britons now. The Underwoods are in the minority. Which, though a new view of the situation to that gentleman, seemed eminently satisfactory. Later, as Kate found Darrell at a window, looking thoughtfully out into the moonlit night, she asked, Of what are you thinking, John? Of what the years have done for us, Cathy of how much better fitted for each other we are now than when we first loved. Yes, she whispered as their eyes met. God's own good time was the best. The End End of chapter 39 Recording by Patty Cunningham End of At the Time Appointed by A. Maynard Barber